Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Isaiah chapter 62 adds an amazing element to our salvation by saying that God enjoys saving us. I mean, it's a great thing to know that God saves people like you and me, but it adds a whole different dimension to know that he delights to do so. He enjoys doing that. And not only does he enjoy saving his people, not only does he enjoy saving you, he enjoys you. He delights in you. If you are in Christ, God delights in you as as he delights in his own son. And I want you to think a little bit with me to to try to to try to help get this the, the feeling of this passage. And so parents, um, have you ever had one of those moments when you just looked upon one of your children, maybe as they were going to sleep at night, or maybe as you watched them from a distance do something just really precious or say something really precious, and you looked upon your children and this, this amazing sense of deep joy uh, came over you. Maybe even tears welled up within you, and you just said, that's my boy, or that's my girl, and you just felt how precious they were to you. You know, a few weeks ago, I looked out my dining room window and I saw my son Luke out in my driveway. He was spraying a sealer on my drive. And he was all by himself out there doing it. I hadn't, I didn't ask him to do it. He was just, just doing it to be good to his dad. And as I watched him for a moment, you know, I had this incredible sense of love and delight in my son. And as I stood looking out that window, I just said out loud, where did I ever get a son like that? And I just just had such delight in him. And it's amazing, it's shocking, it's thrilling to know that God takes delight in you and in me. Not only does God forgive you, not only does he protect you, provide for you, accept you, but more than all this, He delights in doing so, and he delights in you. The message of this chapter, at least one of the main messages, is just that God has great enjoyment in his people. And the word picture God uses to communicate his delight is a bridegroom with his bride. Verse 5 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I think, at least I've been told, that ladies, gals, women tend to more easily grasp the idea of the the affections and the love of God for them. So it's interesting here that, that he gives a word picture that guys could really understand. So, again, to help get the feeling of this, guys, uh, think back to your to your wedding day, to the to the day of you being a bridegroom and with your bride. Your bride on that day is at the height of her glory and beauty. She is lovely in every way. And at that moment, you want more than anything in all the world to spend your life with this woman. To be with her seemed like a dream come true. It, it truly seemed too good to be true. 
It did not matter whether you had money or not, whether you had a nice car or not, whether you were moving into a tiny apartment or student housing. You really did not care because you were so enraptured with your bride. She made you happy. You rejoiced over your bride, to use the language of Isaiah 62. Well, God uses this mountaintop experience of joy in a young man's life to say, this is how I feel about you. This is how I rejoice over you, how I delight in you. I find that amazing, shocking, and thrilling. Gals, on on your wedding day, no matter what's happened since, but on that day when you were the bride with your bridegroom, even in this very imperfect world, you probably had the sense that you mattered to your groom, that he wanted you, that he loved you and delighted in you. And in the same way, God rejoices in his relationship with his saved and redeemed people. So this chapter has, has, has all the joy of a wedding celebration because that is the most joyful celebration in human experience and it becomes, it becomes closest to communicating the joy of God and his people in union with each other. Now, before we go for, further, I, I want to make sure, and I probably don't really need to say this at this church, but... I want, I want to make clear that I am not saying that we are saved because we are such beautiful people or so desirable or such lovely people uh, or because we are so special. We are saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of God, not by our works or anything in us. And this delight that God finds in his people cannot be separated from the gospel. It cannot be separated from the redeeming, saving, forgiving work of salvation that we have through Christ. There is a kind of teaching out there today that says, God is happy with you. God is happy with everybody. And you just need to know that. That's, that's really not the message here today. This is a message of the delight that God takes in his redeemed people who are brought into uh, union with him through Christ. In this other kind of teaching, uh, there is no mention of sin, no mention of Christ bearing God's judgment in our place. There is no differentiation between believers and unbelievers. There is no need to repent of your sins, no need to be born again. This che- teaching just says that God thinks you are wonderful and great, and he wants you to feel wonderful and great about yourself, and to be successful and fulfilled. Um, I don't want to camp too much on this, but I just want to make clear that's, that's not the message that we're communicating right here this morning. The gospel is quite different. It says that we are all guilty sinners. We were at one time enemies of God, objects of wrath. We were the ungodly for whom Christ died. We were lost and ruined by the fall. But... By the amazing grace of God, those who believe in him, as, John, as, as it says in the book of John, shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And it is completely, again, out of the compassion and love and grace of God that he saves us. And he saves us to free us from our sin, from ourselves, and to conform us to Christ. But, having said that, 
it is not as though God saves us, but doesn't really like us. It is not as though God saves us in some sort of cold or calculating way. It is not as though God says, I will do this for my glory, but I really don't have any affections for these people. A thousand times, no. God does not save you reluctantly, and it is not that God is obligated to save you. He loves to save you. He loves to save us. Ray Ortland, a very godly, conservative commentator on Isaiah, put it this way. Here is the meaning of human history. God intends to prove through Christ how much he can love and bless ruined human beings and to prove how much he delights in his people who are in Christ. David Guzik, again, another very conservative uh, Christian commentator. We have only a superficial understanding of how precious we are to God. And then sometimes, if, if you have an ESV Bible, look at the note on Ephesians 1.18. Uh, in that verse, Paul prays that we would comprehend uh, God's inheritance in the saints. And the ESV uh, study note says, the inheritance here is not the Christian's inheritance, but it is God's inheritance. This indicates how precious his people are to God. They are, so to speak, what he looks forward to enjoying forever. I love that. They are, we are God's inheritance. We are, as the people of God, we are what he looks forward to enjoying forever. I find that thrilling. And what makes God's pleasure in us so amazing is the condition that we were in apart from God and his salvation. You know, just like the people of Israel were forsaken, desolate, ruined when God spoke this to them, so we too are in a lost, ruined, desolate condition when God comes and saves us. And that's really stated quite well in verse 4. Uh, no longer will they call you forsaken or deserted or the name of your land desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her. You know, I, I wish I had maybe used a different translation in our, in our uh, bulletin this morning. It's NIV and almost every, the, the word hepsiva means my delight is in her or the one in whom I delight. So God is saying, no longer will be they, they be called. Will they call you forsaken or deserted or the name of your land desolate? But you will be called the one in whom I delight. One commentary said this verse captures as succinctly as any the complete reversal the Lord offers those who repent of their sins. We were forsaken, desolate, but now. As children of God, as beloved children of God, we are the objects of God's pleasure and his kindness. We are, so to speak, the apple of his eye. Now, the Jews historically, uh, in context, the Jews at this time uh, felt deserted, forsaken, desolate. 
And in a way, they were. In their circumstances, if they looked at their circumstances, they were. They were captives in Babylon. They had Babylon. They had lost their homes and their homeland. And it is into these circumstances that God speaks these very precious and even sweet things to them. Into the feelings of rejection, he speaks acceptance. Into feelings of being undesirable. He speaks of rejoicing over them into feelings of of being forsaken. God speaks of marrying them. God loves them and he has a plan to save, redeem, and to bring them to a glorious future through the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Even though we are not in a forsaken state, it is, it is easy even for believers at times to feel that way. And it is a terrible thing to be forsaken or to feel that you are forsaken. And sometimes we all probably in some degree or another feel forsaken and lonely or undesirable, uh, unimportant to anybody, or perhaps even unnoticed by God. And there's you, you can read even through the Psalms and detect that sort of feeling in, in the writers of some of the Psalms. We can be forsaken by a long-time trusted friend, by a husband or wife, or by a mother or father, or even a wayward child. But when God saves us, he brings us, brings us to himself, and he says, I will never, ever leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So instead of being called forsaken, God says, Now I call you the one in whom I delight. Now, there's really four images, and we've touched on a couple of them, and I'm, but I'm going to go back and, and look, at, look at all four of them. There's really four images or perhaps word pictures or just statements uh, in this chapter to help God's people see how precious they are to him and to see his special love for you. Uh, the first image is, is a blazing torch. <laughs> kind, of an, kind of an interesting word picture. Um, found in verse 1. It, but the point is, y- 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 he's saying, you're going to be saved in a magnificent and glorious way so that all will see it. I mean, like you're gonna, it's going to be like a blazing torch. I, and I, I, I love this verse. Verse 1, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. God is saying to his people, I will make your righteousness and your salvation shine so brilliantly. The only things that even come close to it would be like the sun, the rising of the sun in the morning, or a blazing torch, a blowtorch. Your salvation, your righteousness will be so complete, so perfect, that someday you will shine, as it were, like the sun Your salvation will be so public. When I come and get you and rescue you and save you, your salvation will be so public, so powerful, so dramatic, it will come like a blazing torch. The angel of the Lord told Daniel a similar thing in uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, The wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars Forever Again, this image of, of God's people 
someday shining like the stars forever or like the brightness of the heavens. I don't know fully what that means or encompasses, but it means that we that we will be glorified in such a way that it will be it will be stunning. It will be absolutely stunning the the glory and righteousness which the Lord will bring forth out of our lives will be like the sun or like a blowtorch. And God says, I will not rest until this happens. God assures them that though it may seem like he has been silent or asleep or unresponsive to their prayers for deliverance, he assures them that he will come through. He will not rest until Jerusalem is restored to shining righteousness. He will not rest until the people of God, till their salvation is fulfilled and complete. God is basically just saying to us here, I have something to finish and I will finish it. I absolutely will finish it. God has undertaken for your salvation, but he has not completed it yet. But he's saying here, I will. I will not rest until I have completed my work in you. We have not seen the end of the story yet, none of us. But we are told here, it will be so glorious. The end of the story, for you and for me, for God's people will be so glorious that only the image of, a, of, a, of the sun shining or a blazing torch can communicate the glory of it. Verse 2 says, the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. Isaiah was telling this lowly, uh, beaten down people of Israel that someday the Gentiles will see and marvel at the glorious things God does for them. And for us too, the glory of God has shown into our lives, but it is not really on full display yet. Um, there, is, there is coming a day when the Lord will shine through us. Um, when the glory of God will be seen in us. And the glory of his presence in us will no longer be, in a sense, hidden in the lives of his people. Now, and I, I believe God, the glory of God is seen in each of us as believers presently. But Romans 8 says, all creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. I mean, there's, there's more to be seen yet. And that's what this is referring to. Someday we will... We will be put on display. God will display his righteousness and salvation and glory in his people. And someday all will see how great is our God and what great things he does for his people. So the first image is, is, is just this image that we're going to shine like the sun, like a blowtorch, like a blazing torch. Second image is that you're given a new name. Verse 2 continues, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And when you are saved, God gives you a new name. You, and, and there's tons of examples throughout Scripture where when God calls someone to himself, he changes their name. From Abram to Abraham. From Saul to Paul, etc. You, you, you all know about those from Scripture. And we are given a new name. We are, we are called saints in the New Testament. That's, our, that's one of the new names we are given. 
But the new name that God gives you, it, it defines you and it defines God's feelings towards you and his purposes for you. And in Isaiah 62, verse 4, it says your name, is which we've already looked at, your name, your new name is the one in whom I delight. And maybe there's other things that God will call you. I mean, there's lots of places that, that, that actually even in Revelation talk about new names that the Lord will give to you. Um, but at least that is one of, your, one of your new names, the one in whom I delight. And I just wonder, I just wonder if you can really say that. Are you, are you really able to say that? Are, are you able to receive, um, receive this? Uh, are you able to just in your heart of hearts uh, before the Lord to receive that, that he calls you this, the one in whom I delight? I think that could be a pretty big step for, for some, of, some of us, some of you here this morning. The third image that we are given in this chapter is that you will be like a crown of splendor. Verse 3, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Most of us, if we're familiar with much of the Bible, we realize or have heard that we will someday receive a crown. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying that you will be a crown. We will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. God will make you a beautiful crown. He will, he will hold you in his hand like a king would hold a crown. Or he would hold you in his hand like someone would hold a, a beautiful set of jewels or a diamond necklace. And one commentator that I read on this verse simply asks the question, how does a king view his crown? It's precious to him. And that is how God holds on to you. And only God can take a human being like me and like you, who, who are all deeply flawed by sin, ruined by the fall, broken by the pain and sorrows of this life, and make you a crown of beauty. You know, salvation is not so much. We, we, we think of salvation sometimes of just, you know, pressing and pushing to become better people. And I, I mean, there is a sense in which we know that we are called to be transformed and to be zealous for good works, all of that. I'm not, not, not changing that. But we, we, sometimes we, we get this image of salvation that it's so much uh, pressing and pushing ourselves to become something that, that we are not. But, but really, salvation is believing God's promises to make us something far beyond what we could ever do for ourselves. I mean, can you make yourself into a crown of splendor in the hand of the Lord? I don't think so. You have to believe God to do that kind of work in you. All right, the fourth image, again, which we have talked about, the fourth image is that of a bridegroom delighting in his bride. Uh, the first part of verse 5 says that God's people will love and cherish their city. They will marry it. Uh, and then it concludes by saying, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So, again, we've talked about that. 
just want to bring up another verse that clearly communicates that. Some of you know this. Um, all of us should know this or become familiar with this verse or think about it. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you to save you. He will be quiet in his love. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Or I think some versions say with, with shouts of joy. Uh, again, these are, these are really sweet things that God says to us as people. And we need to be able to hear those. Uh, we need to be able to accept those. We need to be able to uh, enjoy those. Um, and, and really delight in his delight in us. Now, verse 6 transitions uh, to deal with the reality uh, that we are, we are waiting for the fulfillment of these things. As God was speaking these promises to, to Israel, uh, they were going to have to wait uh, for these th- to see the complete fulfillment of these things. And so God says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they will never be silent day or night. God has posted watchmen to watch for these things to happen. God raises up those who will pray for all of this to come to pass. The watchmen are prayer warriors, praying, watching for the fulfillment of God's promises. And in a sense, we too live in a uh, in-between time. We, we have the promises, but we have not seen all that is coming. As the scripture says, we, you know, we live in hope. If, if, we've, if we've seen everything yet, then it would no longer be hope. So we live now in a state of hope, uh, hoping and, and waiting for the fulfillment of all that God has promised us. So we, we are like watchmen on the wall, looking for the coming of the Lord and the fulfillment of all these things. And the end of verse 6 says, You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So the Jews here, the Israelites, are called to call upon the Lord. And they are to call upon the Lord until God's people and God's city is restored till it's established as the praise of all the earth. And someday that will be, whether in it, in the millennial kingdom, or certainly we know that the, the new he, the, the heaven that we, what we call heaven will really be the new Jerusalem, what God calls it, the new heavens and the new earth, the new city, God's city. So we too are to pray uh, for all that God has promised to come. Uh, we are to long for these things. We are to set our hearts upon these things. We are to think about these things. We are to uh, want these things to take, plas- take place. And, and we do this when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or when we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God wants us to be to be praying for, to be asking uh, for the completion of these things to come. So never co- never stop, never stop praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's a sense in which our hearts long for this, and so we we pray for that. Don't don't stop praying, don't stop that that longing, that looking, that watching, until the fulfillment of all these things take place. And then 
verse uh, 8 and 9 real quickly. Because Israel had rebelled against the Lord, he had allowed their enemies to basically to take their blessings from them. They'd taken their land, their houses, their grain, their wine. But now in verse 8, the Lord uh, has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain to your enemies and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So God was telling them, there's coming a time when no one will ever steal your blessings. You will enjoy God's blessings and give him praise. And I, I love this phrase, you will eat the harvest and praise the Lord. You know, and that's what we're supposed to do when we have blessing. Just, you know, just enjoy what God gives us and praise the Lord. Always giving him, him credit. That'd be a great verse for a Thanksgiving message, Josh. You will eat the harvest and praise the Lord. There's a time coming when all your desires will be satisfied. You will eat and drink and give thanks to God. Verse 10, we are to prepare for this. Pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up the highway, raise a banner for the nations. And I think, I think this is really communicating. These promises were made to, to, God is speaking here in Isaiah to his people, the Jews, to the Israelites. But God opens up the invitation to other people to become part of this incredibly sweet, wonderful, blessed relationship with God. And of course, that happens through Christ. Christ opened the door. Um, but God opens this invitation here prophetically in Isaiah 62, opens up this invitation to, to other people, to the nations to become part of this. The God of Israel has opened up the city of God to the Gentiles, to us, to anyone willing to come. Whosoever, as Jesus said, whosoever will may come. So all, the, all these promises that were spoken here, uh, we, Gentiles, are invited to, to come and participate in and to enjoy through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, see your Savior your comes, See his reward is with him. It's just, just assuring the people the Lord is coming. Your salvation is coming. He has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten his church. Uh, he came the first time. He is coming again the second time. And his reward is with him. It's just this, this concept of see or behold your Savior comes or see his reward is with him. It's just, just communicating the idea of Look for this. Set your eyes on this. Set your heart on this. Set your affections on the salvation that is to be brought to you. And then verse 12 is just such a, a beautiful conclusion to this chapter. Um, they will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after and the city no longer deserted. Now, what is being said here is really really four four new names in a sense that God is giving his people uh, they will be called holy people they will be called the redeemed of the lord you will be called sought after that sought after that's a name you will be called sought after you will be called the city no longer deserted 
four beautiful names. You will be called holy people. And, and we are called that. In the scripture, we are called saints, the holy ones. You will be called the redeemed of the Lord. It made me think of Colossians. It says, he, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're, we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We've been redeemed out of that. We've been set free. We are, we are the redeemed of the Lord. You will be called sought after. Again, what a, what, a, what a lovely name. You are not unwanted. You are not cast aside. You're not cast away. But you are sought out. That's your name. You will be called sought out. You will no longer, you will be called no longer deserted. And again, reminding us of the verse in Hebrews. The Lord said, I will never ever leave you or ever forsake you. And he, and he gives you a name that says that. You are, your name is no longer a deserted one. All right, I want to wrap up this morning by, uh, I'm not going to really call them applications. I'm going to, I'm going to just say, what difference does this make? And I think, I think some of the difference, I don't mean purely in our feelings, but I think a lot of the difference this makes truly makes a difference in, at, the, at the level of our heart, at the level of our affections, um, is how this chapter, I think, should affect us. It feels good to be sought after, doesn't it? I mean, it feels good to be the one who is sought after, the one who is wanted or to be loved like this. And it's one of the most heartwarming truths of the gospel. And as I, as I thought, thought of this name, um, sought after, um, I, th- I thought of a, a line, this is kind of corny, but I thought of a line from the, uh, the movie Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, and there's a time when our old chauffeur, old black chauffeur, Hoke, um, he had two different people uh, offering him a job. And, and if you've ever seen, seen the movie or, or remember it, but um, he said that, he's, you know, somebody had said, you have a job and just name your salary, whatever it is. And he came back to, I think, as Bully or what, the, the, his, Miss Daisy's uh, son and uh, kind of was presenting this to him. And of course, he made him a bigger offer. And, and, um, and, and uh, Hoke said, uh, to Bully said, you ever had folks fighting over you? And Bully answers, no. And Hoke said, it sure do feel good. You know, it sure feels good. And certainly can't, I'm not trying to draw an exact parallel from that conversation to God. I mean, don't, don't take it that far. But the point is, it feels good to be wanted, uh, to be sought after. And that's, that's the idea, the, that's the affection that is communicated in this chapter. Uh, number two, what difference does this make? Uh, it makes your relationship with God something to enjoy, to delight in. I mean, if you really believe that God delights in you, think that you will be more inclined to delight in Him. You know, when you go to talk with the Lord, whether that be if you go out for a walk or you're talking with Him as you're driving in your car, or you go to pray or read your Bible, you're, you're going to fellowship with a God who 
enjoys you. And I think if you realize that, you will find more, more joy uh, in, in those times with the Lord and be drawn more to that. Uh, the third thing as far as what difference does this make? Well, the best way I can put it is that, in a sense, it makes nothing else really matter. And I don't know how, to, how else to communicate it, but for me at least, uh, when I really sense and grasp and realize that God loves me this way, then I just feel like I am good. Then. I mean, if this, if this is true, God loves me this way, if God enjoys me or delights in me as his child, then I am good. No matter what else is going on, it's really okay. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just like this is a blessing that is so value uh, that, if, that if I have it, if, if I really have it, uh, then I, I can really let all else go. I mean, again... I've quoted it lots of times, but you know, from Luther's hymn, "Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also." And it's just like, hey, the 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 relationship with God, and for him in that song is a mighty fortress. The, that relationship with God is so profound, so solid that that if I have it, and I know I have it, I can really let all else go, and it it just it just it just frees us from from having to have other things be a certain way for in order for us to be happy. Uh, as Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, so whether it's nakedness or famine or peril or sword or whatever else, in a sense, I mean, I know there's a real, there's a real suffering. I'm not not minimizing that, but in a sense, nothing else really matters as long as I can never be separated from this this kind of love that uh, delights in me and cares for me in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when you um, are discouraged, when you hear voices of despair or circumstances seem uh, about to destroy you, you know, I would really just encourage you to go to go back to these sweet things that God says about you, to the precious names that he gives you, and uh, meditate upon those. Let, let that be your reality. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for saying uh, such sweet things to us, your people. Thank you, God, for... Uh, such precious and magnificent promises. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your affections uh, for your people. We are uh, stunned by them, and it means a lot to us, Lord. And just help us not to forget that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Uh, God bless you. Have have a have a wonderful day, and uh, enjoy enjoy the fact that God enjoys you. Amen.